welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity, go to Facebook and like our page. If you're on Twitter, go to 814 Next, lend your voice to the dialogue. Welcome to the last show of 2021. And today we just want to cover a few things that defines this particular era. Certainly there will be a lot of things analyzed, whether it's in the Erie Times or on various news sites or what have you. But 2020 was defined by a couple of basic things. One, obviously, was COVID-19. And then the, the trials that defined this era, that defined this area, this era, the uh, Breonna Taylor situation, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and we'll even throw in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial as well. We bring in guests today so that we can just kind of analyze these couple of items that seem to linger on in this moment. And these are topics that we believe when people look back years from now, they will point at some of these very things to define 2020 and 2021. And so to help me do that today, I have in studio with me two concerned citizens, uh, one of our regulars, Mr. Mark Blunt. Mark, welcome to the show. And Deidre G. Deidre, welcome to the show. And joining us via Zoom are two other guests, Ms. Chantelle Rodriguez, who was a communications student at, student at Penn State Barron. Chantelle, welcome to the show. And, Hi there. All right. And Mr. Lynn Johnson, musician, activist. Lynn, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. All right. So we want to start with... COVID-19, the COVID-19 is, is kind of a loaded topic because it's gone so many different directions. It's affected the lives of everyone in some way, shape or form. And I wanna, I wanna go to each of our guests and just kind of unpack their COVID stories. But before we start, the most recent numbers in Erie, Pennsylvania, as of December 12th, 2021, and this is via the Erie County website, the new cases for COVID are at 118. Again, this is as, as of December 12th, 2021. New cases, 118. Total cases, 38,514. Total deaths, 621. And so, Mark, I'll start with you because I know that you have various vantage points. You are the board chair of a charter school locally here and you have your own personal life. Talk to us about how COVID has affected your life personally well one it's kind of like pulls you apart from family a little bit i guess at the beginning stages because i guess you have several factors or several stages with COVID. you have the before vaccine and you have the after vaccine and the before was the separations and the after was the coming together a little bit a little hesitancy but then you started to get a little bit more comfortable and then now you see the spikes and so now you kind of like are in limbo, we're in a gray area. I've seen mask and I've seen no mask. I've seen people debate about whether they even want to get tested or not tested. Uh, it's, it's been odd because in one case, it separated us from family, but in another case, it brought family together because it forced you to, you know, kids were home. So this is a very unique, experience and how we come out of this, I think we're going to be a, a changed people. I don't know if better or for worse, because it seems like people are, have gotten more vocal about whether people should wear a mask or mm -hmm. not. And the word considerate should come into play. Are we really helping someone by doing these things? Like, are we helping someone by getting a vaccination? Are we helping someone by wearing our mask mm -hmm. or 
is it all about my rights? And yeah. does my rights supersede my fellow person? Where, where does that line, where is that line? I so, definitely want to touch on the polarization of it, but go ahead. So all those things, and I mean, like, we could be all day, but COVID has definitely changed this. But I also found that we don't have any patience. We want what we want, and we want it in spite of, despite of, and you can see it now at the football games. You can see it at the concerts. You can see it. The data is pretty much the same. If you look at the spike in the cases, we're just about at where we were at the beginning as far as mm -hmm. the hospitals is concerned, if not worse. And yet we're acting as if we're not. And people are starting to die again. And people are getting reinfected. And we're learning information as we go. But also, I guess another side effect is everybody's a medical expert now. Yeah. And we can't confuse opinions with facts. And we can't go beyond the data that we have. And we mm -hmm. have to understand this data keeps emerging and it's going to paint a picture. And somehow we have to trust this data and react through data instead of rhetoric. So, Deidre, give us your um, personal journey with COVID. Again, we'll go around the horn on this and then I do want to come back to, to some of the points that Mark was making about just how polarizing this has become. Um, I believe on March 1st of last year that my dad um, had it. They weren't really testing for it back then, so. Um, but he had all the classic symptoms and all the things that they found later, you know, were attributed to COVID. So, <clears throat> and he almost died. Um, and I think that people aren't paying attention that the people that do die, even though you may know, might not know them, there are a lot of people that do, and they have ties in their communities and families and all that. And we're just being reckless with other people's lives. And, and uh, you know, we've, my stepdad did pass away from it, but I got vaccinated because it's not just about me, so. Yeah, Chantel, speak to that, please. So, especially with what she said, um, with vaccinations and just being considerate um, of someone else's health, you know, I'm dealing with a family member that just recently passed on Sunday uh, with COVID, and I feel like a lot of people are losing that type of consideration to someone else's health, whether or not your beliefs, if you believe in COVID or if you believe in the vaccination, I feel like a lot of people are losing that sense of just being considerate to someone else. Um, dealing with it as a mom and a mom of three kids, you know, schools, when they shut down, it, it took a really big hit for me. Uh, I wasn't able to actually be able to do the things that I wanted to with my children. And with me and my husband, we were kind of stuck at home with three kids and we also go to college as well. So it, it took a really big hit for our families to not be able to be with one another. Like they're supposed to be your biggest support system. And at that point we had to lean on one another. And at times it, it got really difficult to try to stay sane. And, you know, even now I, I still want to be considerate to someone else else's health um, with all of the challenges that COVID brought on for all families. Thank you for that. Lynn, talk to us about your journey with COVID-19. Well, um, I, I want to like, you know, um, you know, agree 150% with everyone else was saying, like, there's a selfishness here there, here that's, that's in work. But it's kind of like a, a pattern of a, what's, what's going on in America anyway, there's a selfishness there. So it's like, I want my rights, even if it hurts you, type of mentality here. And uh, it's dangerous, very dangerous to the country. Um, 
I used to work at the health department years ago, so I was, I was, I was soon as it started happening, you know, I start, I was really like really paying attention to it because it's fast. I'm to say in a morbid way, viruses are fascinating. Um, earlier this year, I had I had contracted COVID myself, and it was it was really pretty bad. And I was I was almost there to go to the hospital. It was so bad, you know. And and the way we I contracted it was my daughter. Um, and she got it from work, and I went to you know I took her to be tested, and I was say it was on a Wednesday, and um, Friday I started feeling funny, and um, the test came back she was positive, so I went downhill like fast. I was I was had a hundred five temperature the whole week, the whole weekend. Monday morning, I woke up about two three o'clock in the morning, and I and it, I don't know what my temperature was then, but I'd never been that hot in my life. And um, it was really, really bad. And it, it, I cooled it down by some cold water and in the shower and stuff. But um, I was I was a few seconds telling my wife to call nine one one because I never felt like that before. In my insides and everything, it, it was really bad. I'm still on a journey with COVID because I'm having um, long haul effects still. Um, I wake up every morning, my joints is like killing me, especially my hands and my toes. Um, I do like Tai Chi type movements. I, to this day, I still can't get my full breath still. I just can't, you know, I've, I've been trying and trying, but I just can't get my full breath. So, I, so that's COVID. I caught it was like in the end of January, February, beginning of February when I had it. And still, I'm not. I'm not fully recovered from it at all. So um, I can relate. Yes, yeah. I yeah. can I can relate to that fully because you know I contracted it, and I always tell people that I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Not the way that it hit me. Anyways, you know I posted a couple of things I posted online before. One of the things that I posted was if you have a personal testimony about COVID or a personal connection to COVID, um, post it. And you had all of these posts. And then I posted a photo of me with a mask on and it was, I explained to people that it wasn't a recent photo. It was actually of me in Tokyo, Japan, pre-COVID, several years prior mm. to COVID. And I, mm. I, I got sick while I was in Japan and it was very customary for them to walk around with masks on if they had a cold or some sort of illness to kind of go with what we're saying. I say all that to say, with your testimonies, I asked a question because there seems to be some level of denial, and I'll let you, some of you chime in on this. There seems to be some level of denial as if people don't have these personal testimonies about COVID. And I remember people acting like, is this a hoax? Is this not? And my question to everyone was, well, do, do you have a personal testimony? And everybody was saying yes. Well, where's the hoax coming from? If you have been affected by it personally, did you... Chime in on that. I mean, what was your reaction to just people's reaction to le the legitimacy of whether or not there was actually a pandemic? I, I felt it was very, <clears throat> excuse me, I felt it was very dangerous, um, especially, you know, some of the terms that were used were loaded terms um, when it came to the former um, administration, things like warp speed, like that should have never been used because when you in insinuate something is really fast, um, as opposed to something that might take longer, um, then people don't trust it. So I think that a lot of the words to describe it in the beginning were uh, 
loaded enough that that's where a lot of our people's apprehensions come from. Um, but I, I just, they're scientists, you know, everybody does have an opinion and I, and, and I guess we need to go to primary sources, which are facts and forget about the tertiary, which are opinions, um, and just start thinking for ourselves um, based on facts, not somebody else's opinion. Mm -hmm. Also, I think the difference in this pandemic is the political aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like how you approach it. I, I, don't, I don't think people are denying that it exists now. We got past that part but how we approach it and how we treat it and who is leading this approach it seems it seems to be it seems to be impacting the the implementation of how we how we affect or how we deal with this pandemic mm -hmm. because you i don't see smallpox being treated this way or polio being treated this way, the way that we're dealing with this. It's like it's split between party lines and mm -hmm. we're debating about masks and and it's government overreach and all these type of uh, all these type of things. And also we cannot forget the impact of the internet. Everyone now goes to these medical sites or everyone goes to these informations and what to take, whether it's Mucinex, whether it's something that one time was called a horse tranquilizer, but it was a lice medication and then it gets politicized and I want this medicine now and these type of things. All this is mixed up into this pandemic in real times where people are losing their lives. Mm -hmm. So I want to, I think Mark is teeing you up here, Lynn. I want to read a stat and I want to get your reaction to it before I bring Chantel back in. According to Ballopedia, 20 states, all with Republican governors, prohibit proof of vaccination requirements. In 11 states, governors ban proof of vaccination requirements through executive orders. In nine states, legislators pass laws banning proof of vaccination requirements. In five states, all of which have Democratic governors, California, New York, Hawaii, Oregon, and Washington have facilitated the creation of digital vaccination status application or passed laws or enacted orders exempting fully vaccinated individuals from some COVID-19 restrictions if they can prove, prove vaccines. This goes in harmony with what Mark is saying. The fact that in many, many ways, this thing has been politicized along party lines. Speak to that, Lynn. You know, um, it's, it's, it's two things that's going on. One thing has been going on for, for um, a couple of decades now. The dummying down of America, you know, people they're, it's almost like they're anti-intellectual or anti-thinking or something. So, so even before Trump, you could see this thing starting to roll into people that, no matter what the facts were, that's not that's the facts are our opinion all of a sudden. Um, we we are in a dangerous spot. Period. I mean, as far as what's going on here, because we have this cult type mentality is going on that they don't they don't that there's people there's a substantial number of people really doesn't want to listen to facts whatsoever no matter what you show them and they go to people that they go they go to find instead of finding facts they will go and find a, a people that agree with what they're saying instead of like testing their what they think they know um 
as it, it's and it's just fascinating to me. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading this article. Um, I forget her name. The actress you used to play the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I cannot think of her name. Anyway, remember Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Mm-hmm. So she goes into the. So she, she was a very staunch, staunch Trump supporter. Um, she was like, um, she's anti-vax, vaccine and stuff, right? And she was saying basically that this whole thing's a hoax. She was really on an extreme. So she contracts COVID, and I think it was in September she contracts, she contracts it. And she's online. She ends up in the hospital, and she sends out these 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 texts and Instagrams and whatever that please pray for me, you know, blah blah blah. She was scared. She's on she's on a ventilator and stuff. So after she gets off, the, gets well, gets better, she's now she's back on the on the on the trail about the anti-vax. So some of this stuff is just beyond logic, beyond uh, I, I don't understand it. I, I really don't. Either. I don't either. And you know, we we follow pro athletes. Uh, you look at people like Kyrie Irwin, um, mm-hmm. that just risk their entire careers over vaccination status. I want to go to Chantel because Chantel has a unique vantage point. Chantel, you are viewing this and experiencing this situation as a wife and a mother, right? And as a college student, so you're in the adult world, per se, but you're on campus and you're interacting with a lot of students who are still just kind of moving into or coming into their own as adults. Give us a sense of, you know, what you're hearing from people or seeing from people about the, the, the virus itself, uh, their opinions on vaccines and where we are today. Yes, so my situation is definitely unique in that way. Um, being an adult student, I believe I'm 100% surrounded by at least the 18 to 21 year olds. And from the first of uh, COVID and the quarantine happening, a lot of people were still in shock, uh, you know, with the vaccination and they were wondering what was gonna be next, especially with schooling. Uh, I, I heard a lot of noise on social media where people were posting things constantly of if this is a hoax and, you know, Instagram even started putting ads on there where if you even refer to COVID-19 whatsoever, it'd bring you right back to the health department website. Um, So I, after vaccine came out, I did hear a lot of people still being reckless. They were still doing parties and they were still going out in public, you know, uh, being around friends, even friends that were actually contacted with COVID. And it it was kind of just like a big joke to them. Um, Not for everyone. A lot of people did take it serious and a lot of people have gotten their vaccines. But with Barron requiring that you do get a vaccine or you're going to be tested uh, weekly, a lot of people didn't take those tests. A lot of people kind of brushed it off to the side. And as as a mother going to campus and my husband also going to campus, it, it was a lot a lot of fears with us going back that possibly we're around reckless people who could potentially have it and not say anything because their beliefs, you know, they don't think anything is going on or nothing is real. And we end up bringing it home to our family and end up getting sick that way. So it it was a lot of head scratching for me just because I, 
haven't ever really been personally affected by it until recently. So it makes me think back that these people are just kind of going off of social media, that cult mentality that Lynn was talking about. Uh, I definitely see that being a lot more prominent, prominent actually in college campuses. Oh, well. We transition, as we transition into the trials that kind of define this era, I want to get just kind of an overview. Mark, I'll start with you. So we've covered COVID-19, and you can still comment on that or pepper your comments with that if you choose. We've covered COVID-19 because I genuinely believe from 2020 and 2021, COVID-19 will be something that we will always reference when we look back at this moment. These trials that we're now about to discuss, I feel the exact same way about. From the time of America's great reckoning, where are we at right now, in your opinion, Mark, where justice and equity and it's opened up a Pandora's box, a much needed Pandora's box that needed to be opened. Where do you think we are uh, from the time of all of these protests and uproars to now? They say history repeats itself or from those that don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat. I feel we're at 1968, 69, where Lyndon B. Johnson comes up with something called the Great Society, and he does studies in, on race, and it comes out, you have two Americas. That's where we were at pre-George Floyd. We were on a two Americas issue. The cities were being torn apart for whatever reasons. Same thing, 68, 69, the cities were being torn apart. Things like affirmative action, remedies were coming out. How do we address this? That was on the table equities, advancement of, uh, how do we make civil rights right? How do we advance this? But then Vietnam hit. And when Vietnam hit, it distracted everything. Mm -hmm. All resources, all whatever went to that. And when you came out of that, I'm a shortness, but when, it, when we come out of that, all those gains were villainized. All those things were pushed back. You have Nixon coming in. You have, you have the country that moved to the right somehow. And yet, the same thing seems to happen now. Whereas the George Floyd, what did you have prior to, prior to Vietnam? You had young white Americans that had sided that justice was more important than the way history or, or the way it is, just the way it is was no longer acceptable. Mm -hmm. They were going into the South, they were registering people to vote. They was looking at their country and saying, we could do better. That's what was going on at that time. But Vietnam hit, and then the establishment struck back. And I see it the same way right now. I've seen everybody downtown after the George Floyd thing, black kids, white kids, old, young. And then COVID hits, the election hits, the new Vietnam, I'm going to use that allegory. And after this, what is the aftermath? After, aftermath? Black Lives Matter becomes the Black Panthers. All of a sudden, you, you have these CRTs everywhere. CRT that's not even in school systems, that's being villainized. You have redistrict, redistricting. You have all kind of things that is happening to push back the fear of what they saw. The establishment saw that this country was changing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now, equity is off the table. All of a sudden now, reparations is off the table. 
it's been villainized, it's been pushed back, it's been erased. Mm -hmm. Now all of a sudden the ARP monies that was coming out, unprecedented, just like the Great Society. That was Biden's answer. He, it was gonna deal with inequities. It was gonna deal with many things, even, even the preschool. Same thing came out of the 69, Head Start came out of that. All these things now are being pushed back. Mm -hmm. All these things, all of a sudden now we're investing more in sewers. We're talking sewers. The mayor, talk, the mayor in the beginning of this, he was talking, hey, I want to end racism. And I'm not saying he's off of that, but today we're talking sewers. With this money, we're talking sewers. We're talking right. infrastructure. We're talking about Bayfront. Mm -hmm. We're not talking equities no more. We're not talking that coming together promises or, or making things better remedies. That ain't what we're talking now. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's up to us to move the needle back to where we were and still continue to fight in spite of COVID and in spite of the resistance that is going on today. Excellent synopsis, excellent. So let me go to the actual trial then. Deidre, I'll move to you with this because I know that following a lot of these trials is a personal passion mm -hmm. of yours. Derek Chauvin received 22 and a half years in prison. And uh, I don't know if you guys know, but tomorrow he is um, going in federal courthouse and he's going to be pleading guilty to violating George Floyd's civil rights. So that'll be more time that he'll he'll be getting. And he also has another trial that he has charges for a 14 year old that he kneeled on his neck. So he needless to say, I don't think that he'll ever. Um, you know, graces with his presence because he'll be in prison. Um, that was that was um, a tough trial to watch, but. It all made sense. They did a, They did an amazing job just doing what they did, and it just didn't. The thing that didn't make sense is the defense attorneys. You know the stuff he was trying to do. Um, but yeah, that was. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy for that. But he should have gotten more time because the enhanced the enhancement on it because it was in front of a nine year old. He should have gotten more time. But the judge gave him 22 and a half instead of I think it was supposed to be 40 to life. Um, you know, but that's that's good for now. And then once the federal he's charged or once he's sentenced for the federal charges and the the other young man that he did this to, um, who survived, um, then you know he'll he'll be doing some pretty hefty time. DJ, how much do you think the moment lent itself to the sentence for Chauvin? Um, I don't think it lent it to it enough, if that makes sense. I mean, people were literally in the street, streets for. Like with Eric Garner and Michael Brown, I mean, you had cities all over the place that were doing these protests in solidarity, and I and I just don't think it. Um, and the judge did say he didn't want anyone to think that uh, when he sentenced, they would be out of emotion or politics. He was just doing what uh, what he thought was fair and just. So, but I, I just think the screaming and yelling just wasn't loud enough for some reason. For or maybe people they still have fingers in their ears. Oh, I can't hear you, type thing, you know. So I don't know. Yeah, I think when I think about the George Floyd murder and the trial for Derek Chauvin, you know, you think a little bit about Rodney King, although they got off. But with, with the amount of time that he received, one thought, well, man, well, what do you have to do to receive the maximum? I mean, given the circumstances, it was a public lynching of this man. What do you have to do to warrant a maximum sentence. Before we go on to the next trial, I'll give um, Chantel and Lynn an opportunity to chime in on anything that they've heard here. Well, it's, it, if you take the whole thing in perspective and history, I guess one could argue that it's better, but that doesn't mean it's good. 
you're right. Like this, I mean, how can you not get the maximum? He was, he was, it, it's a worldwide view. This dude, like, it wasn't like a quick, like a, um, you know, reactionary, somebody gets shot. It was in a few seconds, it's over. He was on this guy's neck for eight minutes. And, and people were begging him and telling him and, you know, to stop for eight minutes. For eight minutes, this guy was doing this. And he knew he was being videotaped too, but he didn't care. This, the, so if you go back into, let's say, like the 60s or something like that, nothing would have happened to him. But the sentence he had is still like way too light for what he did. It's way too light. And yeah, it's way too late. And I'm going to have to agree with Lynn on that. I feel like at this point, we had the time to, you know, do these protests and it was a big turnout. And we have to show them that we're not stopping. We're going to continue. Uh, we're not just going to sit idly by. We have to follow this agenda, especially with COVID, with all of the stops that we've had as a society. This isn't the time to slow down. This is the time to actually keep going at it harder. And with his sentencing, I, I just don't feel it was correct, whether it be emotionally based or not. Mm -hmm. um, that's just my opinion in that in that aspect that he should have gotten more time. There was video, there was national protest, global protest of, of it. So I feel like the judge saying that he doesn't want to make it an, an emotionally based decision um, that when we wouldn't have took it that way. And if mm -hmm. someone would have taken it as an emotional sentence, if he would have got longer, then I think that they're the problem. They don't see how big of an issue this is. Yeah. So I want to go back to Lynn for additional commentary, Lynn, because I know that when you've come on the show and even in personal conversations, you oftentimes go after the fact that these things are a snapshot of America. I think the one thing we can agree on America, too many Americans have been in denial of who we are as a country and who we continue to be, although some things are better, don't get me wrong. So when you look at this trial, and just brief, briefly referencing the Breonna Taylor trial, because we've got to move forward here, grand jury indicted uh, Brett Hankinson on wanton endangerment charges connected to this, for connected to the Breonna Taylor killing, but he wasn't charged with any crimes related to her death. Again, this was the bullets going through the neighbor's apartment. Right? Endangering the pregnant woman there. When you look at trials like that one and trials like what we just talked about with Chauvin, what can America learn about ourselves as a nation from the circumstances leading up to them and even the verdicts themselves? America, um, this, is this is something that, that we learned, it's something that we already know. Mm. It's like, what, what, are you, what are we gonna do about it? Um, and I, I don't think, personally, I don't think that we are going to go much further than where we are now. Um, I think we're in extreme danger for us as a nation, period. Um, we cannot solve our problems until we do it with uh, white supremacist ideology. Mm -hmm. And how it affects everything across the board, from the criminal justice system to education, Health it affects everything somehow, and 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 we have people, at least publicly, denying that their vote is 
is is about that one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't see things going but so I hate to sound pessimistic, mm-hmm. but but looking at the other trials, how it all came down or, or, could, or didn't come down, um, we we we're in a dangerous spot. Yeah, we're we're in a, a seriously dangerous spot in, in so many different ways and reasons why. Um, and to me, like the 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 the, the um the Sharpen sentence kind of shows that black lives really don't matter unless we unless you, the, the, the 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 spotlight is put on the cockroaches mm-hmm. and they have to do something a little bit of something. Right. Yeah, that's what's going. That's how I see it. I think that the Arbery trial, which we'll say for last, encapsulate a lot of different things. But I, I do want to allow Deidre to comment on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial because the leading up to this show, she specifically texted me and said, "Hey, can we talk about this Rittenhouse verdict?" And I said, "Absolutely." So Deidre, Deidre. Talk to us about that. What was your, obviously, young man was acquitted. Yes. Give us your thoughts on this trial. Um, so I'll just, a little bit of uh, backstory. You know, I've been in these types of protests. And this really, when you look at things like Charlottesville, when Heather Heyer was killed, um, you had white men carrying long guns and, and attacking protesters that were, even white people, white people attacking other white people, mostly because they were black allies. You know, white allies for Black Lives Matter and, and all of those things. So. Um, People were horrified. And so when you go into these protests and you've got white people with these long guns, there is no reason in the world why um, the three victims or anyone for that matter would not have been intimidated by them being there. They can say they're helping all they want. And there's that intimidation because it's been seared in our minds of Jews will not replace us with tiki torches and these long guns and all of these things that they were attacking other people. So what I'll say, um, just to is that when that incident happened, I watched it live. And when Kyle um, killed uh, Joseph Rosenbaum, it doesn't matter how it happened, nobody knew. When that happened, nobody knew if they knew each other, they didn't know who either of them were, they didn't know why it happened at that moment. You're just bystanders, nobody knows. All they hear is shots fired and somebody falling to the ground. What were they to think? So anyone else after that, I think would have been self, would not have been self-defense because you're, it's an active shooter. They're trying to protect themselves and others. That's their perception, whether or not that's what it was, which I believe that's what it was, but it's, we have to think about that. Nobody had context to why um, Rosenbaum was killed. So this whole trial, the way the judge was sitting next to him to video, view video, um, the way he was screaming at the prosecutor, and, and look, I even, when the prosecutor said something, I go, didn't he just rule that you're not allowed to do that? So I was probably paying more attention than him, but um, it's one of those, that was just, now you've got a kid who feels empowered and you have a whole generation of his age that feels empowered, that they can just strap on long guns. And, and it really was the ideology of Black Lives Matter. There's that contention for those protests that stick up for black men that have been killed by police or hurt by police, whatever it may be. And it was a contention for Black Lives Matter that that happened. The only reason why they were there with guns. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because I think that it empowers the, uh, the white vigilante mentality. We saw yet another school shooting and yet another school shooter who was taken in without incident. And I'm in personal conversations and I I say, you know, I want to encourage you to just think about that unto itself, how for certain demographics, you can be a mass shooter 
And unless you kill yourself, you will be abducted without incident. You could be a person of color. I thought you had something. I murdered you because I thought you had something. Do you not see a pattern here? And this probably I hadn't thought about it like that. I said, nobody's trying to race bait anybody, but you have to just look at how some of these cases are playing out. And it's so flagrant that it is ridiculous. So Mark, I'm, I'm coming to you. Give me your overall thoughts on the Arbery trial and let's start picking apart some things with that one. I, I wanna go back to Rittenhouse. Do you think? She used the word victims here, which wasn't allowed to be used mm. in the trial of what they actually were. They were called looters. They were called rioters. Thugs. They were villainized. The victims were villainized. Yes. Understand, this is where I go back to telling you, this is the lesson that's taught. If you're going to side with them, right. this is what can happen to you. The courts have sent that message. Understand what the courts have done throughout the course of America. Separate but equal came from the courts. 2% of black blood makes you black. That came from the courts. Blacks have no rights which, which whites have to respect came from the courts. The courts are sending you a message and they're still sending it today and understand, look at how that judge's behavior was. So this is the snapshot of America. It was sent with Emmett Till. The court, said, uh, the court said it there. The court said it with the three civil rights workers. Mm -hmm. I believe in one of the trials, they said we would have took longer, but we had to stop for a Coke while they let them out. So understand this right here. We have to elevate how we go about fighting the system. Lynn, Lynn brought up supremacy. And understand that is the attack on CRT. I'm not here to advocate CRT, that's not my point. But CRT starts to point and say, we have some systemic structural issues that we have to address. And you will not hear the word supremacy in normal education. But yet it exists and it's affecting a lot of the people mm -hmm. that is sitting in those little classrooms. It's affecting their lives from their mortgages to their, to, to their car loans, to their, their health. We see a disparity in healthcare and how you are treated by a doctor. How you are treated, your experience is not everybody's experience going through the system. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here to, this is not race baiting, this is numbers, this is data talking. Right. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to, 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 to just rhetorically anger someone. I'm here to get you to look at this history, this data, that's, the story is right here. And then where do we go from here and I'm, how do we affect it? I'm, I'm Excellent points. I want to jump right on that because you set up another segue because you're talking about America's history. The citizens arrest laws ground zero for the Ahmaud Arbery trial, right? And in the state of Georgia, the citizens arrest statute had its origins, according to Vox, in the Civil War era. This was passed in 1863. They repealed this law after after Armand Arbery's assassination or after his murder. This was when slavery was still considered legal by Southerners despite the Emancipation Proclamation. And so this law lingered on long enough for these three men to utilize this premise as an excuse to hunt down and murder a man over what they perceived him of having done you know, supposedly. And so you've got Travis McMichael. Travis McMichael was, was um, you know, all of these guys, Gregory McMichael, his father, all convicted. William Roddy Bryant, all convicted of the murder 
of Ahmaud Arbery. And so before I start going into that trial, Lynn, uh, general thoughts on the Arbery trial, and if you want to add something to what you've heard already here. All right, <clears throat> this is, um, when it comes down to, I mentioned white supremacist ideology, when it comes to that, and, and, and um, Mark was kind of talking about history and stuff, you're talking about history, the, the biggest weapon of white supremacist ideology is that it's omissions from the history books and what's, what's happened. Now, go to Rittenhouse, him not being convicted. One of the things that people are, one of the, one of the couple of things people aren't talking about is all through history, it shows that white people that stand up for black people's humanity, they are in, they are in danger. Their white cards get revoked. You can go all the way back to the abolitionists. The history books in our schools don't tell me some of the abolitionists got murdered. They don't tell you that. The history, the history books in, a, in the schools now, um, I've, I, they don't mention about during the Reconstruction era, white people get some white white down south get murdered, lynched. Um, you fast forward to the sixties. There were in, in this protest, there were white people that get murdered, and there was no consequences behind that. So the, the one of the, the, the themes with this this whole thing with this country is that if you stick up for black and brown lives and you're white, your life don't matter as much. And the Rittenhouse case shows that your your life doesn't matter as much if you're sticking up for black people's humanity. The Arby case. It still shows progress in, in a way, but also no progress whatsoever. When that initially happened, they didn't arrest those guys. Right. They would have they walked, except the video came out. And it forced them to do, they, they, they forced the trial, the video forced the trial. Not the investigation, the video did. Mm -hmm. It forced them to do what it, what, where, where it came out. Now, if it wasn't on video, that man would have been another shot black man, mm -hmm. and white. So I want to mention a few things, Lynn, to go along with that in terms of the progress, because on the one hand, you've got nine jurors, nine female jurors, two men, one black juror, overwhelmingly mm -hmm. an all-white all jury, and yet they found these men guilty. So on the one hand, as you pointed out, that's progress. When you start to drill down on it, the trial is in Glenn County. 26% of the residents are black in Glenn County. That was not a 26% or better representation with the jury pool. Yep. You go to Brunswick, Georgia, where Ahmaud Arbery was actually shot. Brunswick, Georgia is 55% black, a far cry from the jury representation. And so on the front end, well, on the back end, you've got the verdict. The verdict is prog progress. But on the front end, once again, there was an attempt to stack the deck. So exactly. that there was an outcome, a preconceived outcome, and this time it backfired. Chantel, I want to come to you and just give you an opportunity to comment on any of the things that you've heard, because I know we've covered a lot of ground that resonate with you. Yeah, definitely that uh, Rittenhouse case. Um, you see the same thing happening everywhere where you would think that you'd be able to have a jury that are of your peers 
but instead you're having an entire white jury uh, with like the Arbery case. Um, Rittenhouse has become, I think I referenced some people online that they called him a hero. And, you know, they're seeing this as a more common aspect where if you do something like this as a white man, you're, you're going to be greeted. You're going to be going into a restaurant and people are going to be applauding you or giving you a handshake. And just even seeing the photos that were released before his trial, he was just smiling. People were hugging him and thanking him for what he did. And I just don't think it's okay that he was sitting there after the fact of the trial and now he's become like a socialite. He's being offered jobs. He's being offered interviews to speak on radio shows or yeah. podcasts. And it's just that type of thing that you see consistently where these people, if they get off free, they'll be a-okay in society versus someone who is black or someone who is Latino. You know, they don't get those chances to speak out. They don't, they might not even get the chance to speak at all if they're shot on sight. And I, I just don't agree with that type of notoriety that Kyle Rittenhouse is receiving when our Barry wasn't given that opportunity. They didn't second, second guess about shooting him on site it, it was all just uh, a mess to me, I feel. Mm -hmm. And so, excellent points. You know, that, even before he went to trial, if you look at Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, people like uh, your famous actor from Silver Spoons, Ricky Schroeder, you know, all these different individuals were raising money for his defense fund from the beginning. And so, yes, yeah. as you pointed out, now he's, he's a sought-after voice to appear on all these different shows and everything else, and, and it's absolutely ridiculous. I want to go to Deidre's reaction on this. When you go back to the Arbery trial, prosecutor Linda Dunikowski, a lot of people were very, very um, curious and fascinated by the way she chose to handle that trial. Only once in her closing remarks did she point out the fact that this was a black man hunted down by these gentlemen. There was also an occasion where one of the, 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 the truck that was used, the pickup that was used, had the flag on it that was the old Georgia flag with the image of the rebel flag. She was given permission to use that in her argument and chose not to. And one of the, the logics behind that was, or the logic behind that was, how many people in this jury may have that same license plate or may be sympathetic to this, we are in the state of Georgia, she seemed to be very, very careful with how she utilized race in this trial. Talk to that a little bit. Um, I, I think she did an amazing job. Um, I was cheering her on the whole time. She, she did an amazing job and she was very professional. The judge in that case was very professional too. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes the strategy has to be sometimes what she did is sometimes you can't. I do believe in the end, though, when she was showing pictures, she did flash that truck real quick with the mm -hmm. with the thing on there. But during the trial itself, it opens up a door for things. And that's why they weren't um, admitting certain things in evidence is because they didn't want to open the door to other things like mental health issues, so on and so forth. Um, the Laura Hogue, when she said is long, dirty toenails, she was trying to open a door um, for mental illness because that's he had schizophrenia. Effective um, disorder, and that is, a, you know, poor hygiene 
is a uh, symptom of that. Um, but I think she did a good job trying to remove race. Mm -hmm. But um, that Kevin Goff, whew, that was hard to watch. The way he, you know, because um, of Reverend Al Sharpton being in the being in the courtroom, the way he was saying we don't want black pastors in here and. And all of that. I like the response that there ended up being like 300, 400 black pastors, you know, in the parking lot um, the next couple of days. But um, I think she did a good job. I think the defense was just real blatant as far as they were racist, you know. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, you made the statement. I'm not saying these things to just uh, rhetorically anger people. I'm, I'm stating facts about history and about what has been done in America. And you weren't just giving an opinion per se. And so, when I think about the way she handled this, there is a, where, where racism is concerned. And you know, Lynn, all of you as guests have gone here in different ways, shapes, or fashions. Speak to the importance of presenting the evidence of the racial disparities that have been present in this country for so long, because I know that the CRT conversation is a hot-button issue for you, critical race theory, and to me, that's an opportunity to just present the evidence of what has happened in this country historically and allow people to sort out how they feel about it. Speak to that. Well, I just think it's a, it's, some people perceive it as a threat to the establishment, no one wants to address. They want to sweep it under the, the mat. No one wants to know what really happened to the Native Americans, except for the Native Americans. I mean, understand that they were walked across the country over to the other side of the Mississippi, the Trail of Tears. It's like maybe a sentence or two talking about it. Understand, when we say genocide, it's not applicable to them. And that's what happened. Understand that the state of California was paying for a human being scalp because they was a Native American and they were where we wanted, not we, but they, because I wasn't part of that. They wanted that land and they took it by whatever means. Understand that you cut off their, su their supply of food by killing off the buffalo. People don't want to talk about that and understand that so we don't go down this path again. That's why I talk about it. Mm -hmm. Understand that this trial where we were talking about in Georgia, what empowered those, what made those three individuals think that they had the right to chase him down and do that? Hmm, isn't that Trayvon? Right. Wasn't Trayvon walking down there with Skittles and, and a hoodie and then the argument became Citizens he shouldn't wear a hoodie. Law. Yep. Well, this one shouldn't have been jogging in this neighborhood. He's jogging in the neighborhood and we don't like the way he jogged in the neighborhood. Where was you at? How did that lead to a death sentence? Mm -hmm. How did that lead to a death sentence and that was okay? That was okay to stop this guy, whereas the issue wasn't his rights. No one even talked about his rights not to be stopped. It was he was suspicious from the very beginning. We're born suspect. One of my one of my mentors told me one time, he said, if you bet, if you black, you're born at high risk. You're born a threat in this country right now. You're born a threat. You're born a problem. You're born with certain things that you carry. I.e., let's just say it like this. Obama during the, the Trayvon trial was handcuffed. He couldn't say, I feel Trayvon was a victim and it was wrong. The best he could come up with, if I had a son, it would look like Trayvon. Mm -hmm. Trump called Rittenhauer a, 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 a hero, basically. This man shouldn't even be on trial. No one questioned the president of the United States talking about a current trial at the thing, making him a hero, creating a line 
Either you're on this side or that side. If mm. Obama had done it, Fox News would have had a fit. Mm. A president commenting on a trial. He's beyond that or whatever. That's what I was hearing before. But you didn't hear it in the Rittenhouse thing right. on Trump's behavior. That's what we call privilege. That's what, that's what CRT would be addressing. Mm -hmm. How do we get here? Why do some people feel privileged? I'm not villainizing those that do. I just want you to understand that you, I'm, I'm privileged to be healthy, to be able to get up and walk. Whereas a handicapped person, we have to have, make handicap accessible. I'm privileged because I'm healthy. I get that. But I'm not in denial about that. However, don't be in denial that there's certain things that come mm -hmm. to being white in this country. So Linda Dunikowski, in her prosecution, and the methodology that she adopted or the strategy that she chose actually sets an example, I believe, as well. When it comes to race, oftentimes the best thing to do is just present the facts. And sometimes if you go overboard with just um, bloviating or throwing out, you know, uh, empty rhetoric, it turns people off. But when it comes to the issue of race in this country, if you just present the facts and stand back and say, now nah, I'll let you figure out how you feel about that, you'd probably be surprised at what people come up with after hearing the facts. Let's head towards the finish line here. I'll start with you, Chantel. Going into 2022, what are your hopes? Because we've obviously been through a lot as a society. And we've talked about the things that have kind of shaped these last two years. Hopefully we're on the tail end of some of the madness that we've discussed. But what's your hope for 2022? What do you think happens after we come out of the other side of this, if we come out of the other side in 2022? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. It's been a crazy year. And uh, what I want to hope for is that people are going to be more open to conversations like this. Uh, conversations that talk about the media disparities between, you know, missing women, missing white women, indigenous women, and black women and Latino women, uh, that media disparity in that I want people to talk about how these trials are affecting society and are giving a rite of passage to people that feel that they could get away with things like this. I also want it to be in people to have an open mind where they're not just gonna quickly shut off someone because we have differing opinions or we don't like the same things or have the same type of views. Uh, you see a lot of that in college where a lot of people are shutting off from that and just sticking on a one track mind that they can't, it, they, it's like they can't feed themselves a little bit more about new information that maybe they weren't privy to having knowledge of before. So I definitely want to be able to have uh, an open minded year to be able to hear all sides of the story and be able to keep moving forward with uh, bringing justice and bringing more people to the table to bring and have these conversations that maybe they weren't open to or had the privilege of before. Um, so that's definitely my hope for 2022. Mm -hmm. Lynn, 2022, what are you hoping is on the other side? Um, I'm, I am hoping that a substantial amount of Americans, black and white, red, brown, whatever, they got to pay attention to what's going on in this country right now. Cause we are we are on the cliff of disaster. And that's not even being an exaggeration. We have a party that is all its sense purposes. There are there are um, a white supremacist, fascist, authoritarian pushing party. That's what they are. 
um, it is a good chance that they could be in the majority in both houses after June. And after that, all bets are off. It's going to, it's, the America will not be the same. It's not going to be a, it, over a couple of years. Uh, it might not even be America, what we're looking at. And we have to understand, like, I feel sorry for the kids because each generation, you know, it seemed like, especially when it comes to black folks, each generation was closer ahead. They could see the light. Each generation seemed more and more the light mm-hmm. until now. Right now, we the light's getting turned off. The light's getting dimmer because of what's, what's, going, what's happened over the last couple of decades, particularly the last four years. And we're making the same mistake that we did in the Civil War. That when these life sentences these people are getting for the insurrection, it's if you go back to the Civil War, just think about it. If they if they did what they should have did to some traitors, that what they would have to solve for, they were traitors. Executed them, life and sentence. How different would America be right now if they did that? We're in a watershed moment. Right again, similar to that right now, and these people are not being punished like they should be. We're we're a ser- we are in serious danger. Mm-hmm. I hope Americans get that and go to the polls and make sure these people do not get any more power. But we're done. Thank you for that, Lynn. Uh, Deidre, 2022, and then we'll give Mark the last word. World peace, please. <laughs> World peace, simple and succinct. Mark, what are you hoping is on the other side of this? How do you top that one? <laughs> I, 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 I do hope for peace. I do hope that the young people that was moving forward with the George Floyd, all people, young people, old, black, white, will still continue their fight for justice. I, I hope that we don't get desensitized to the violence that we're seeing in our community because although we have COVID, a bigger threat is the bullet versus the virus, how our human lives have been devalued to the point where young men is just slaughtering each other. And this, and this world just seems so cold mm-hmm. and desensitized to some of the things that is going on. And I hope we don't get used to that. Uh, uh, and that's my hope. I just hope that we keep hope alive. I hope, I wish everyone health out there and I wish everybody happy holidays. After the turmoil of 2020, 2021 has given us a front row seat on how America has responded and continues to respond to what we've witnessed. The disparities in in healthcare, COVID has unveiled. The disparities amongst ourselves, ethnically and racially, this moment has unveiled. And hopefully in 2022, we inch just a bit closer to a better version of ourselves. Uh, Thank you all so much. We've reached our time for tuning in today. You could have done a lot of things, but you've chosen to do this with your time. Tune in next month as we analyze more things that affect our community here and abroad. Um, Again, you can listen to us on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. on 91.3 FM. For Marcus Atkinson, this is Next on WQLN, and we will see you next time.